A few years ago, I was invited to give the pre-election prayer for the United States of America at Congress. And uh, so I walk in the House of Representatives, and I go to the podium there, the same spot where the president gives the uh, State of the Union address. And I just remember, you know, you've, you've got all the, the pomp of the place, you know, it's all dressed up. And I remember looking back as I stood at the podium, and I was waiting to be announced to come up and do the, the prayer uh, for 2012 election. And I looked up straight in the back and staring right at the middle of the pulpit uh, was this sculpture standing straight, looking, looking right at me. And it was, it, was a statue, it was a sculpture of Moses. And I, and I just thought about that, like for our nation, is like the reason they put that, there, there are a lot of figures like presidents and historical figures around, but the one that has dead center looking right at the president or the speaker of the house or whoever stands in that leadership position over the people of the United States, when you're looking back there, the, one, the reason it was placed there is that the one person that you're ultimately going to be judged by is standing there. Now, that's not quite theologically correct. You know, Jesus is going to be the judge of the world, right? But what it's saying is, ultimately, we're going to be judged by, without Jesus, if Jesus isn't in the picture, you're going to be judged by how well you kept the laws of that guy right there, this guy right here. How well did you keep the law of Moses. And the answer to that for all of us, if you stand before God someday, how well did you keep the law good enough in order to get into heaven according to the laws of Moses? And the answer for all of us will be what? No, we all failed. We don't want to be by, judged by Moses on judgment day because we would all end up in hell. Uh, Moses is an incredibly important historical figure. Now, for, for most of you in the room, when you picture Moses, this is probably not what you picture. All right? When you picture Moses, what image for most of you, what image comes to your mind? What's the guy's name? Yeah, that guy, Right? That he's on the Lord's side, coming to me, right? And he's got the tablets there coming down off my mouth. I mean, that is the, for me, if I'm thinking epic motion picture, that's it, okay? That's the big one, all right? And nobody was bigger than what Charlton Heston was in that movie. I mean, you just can't be a bigger figure than what Moses was. And then we kind of kiddied it down a little bit, I think back in the 90s, uh, but I, I really love this cartoon. I, cry, I didn't cry during this Moses, but I cried during this cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, all right? When he came down and just put that staff and pfft, here goes the water. I mean, I'm sitting in a theater in Beckley, West Virginia, and I just started, I just started crying during a cartoon, all right? I was 29 years old, and I'm crying during a cartoon, and it, it was just done really well. And as I talk about the, the person of Moses, I, I just want you to, to, to think, think about this. Is next to Jesus, Moses is the most transformative figure in the history of Western culture, maybe the world. Next to Jesus, Moses is the most transitional figure probably in the world. People at the time of Jesus 
referred to Moses the way people in the world today refer to Jesus. You get that? Is it's just like, well, what when we would say, what would Jesus do? That's what we would say today, right? Back during the time of Jesus, people would say, What? What would Moses do? What would Moses say? How would he? He he's pivotal in the history of humankind. And we're gonna see over the course of the next year just exactly how pivotal he was. He is so intertwined with the giving of God's law that his name is synonymous with the Old Testament. So much so that they would say, well, what would Moses say about that? They, what the really meaning is, what does the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. With the exception of the book of Genesis, everything in the Old Testament, from Exodus to Malachi, revolves around the things that Moses did and the things that Moses said. Moses, it's been said that Moses gave the Hebrew people the Torah and Joshua through Malachi and all the prophets is just commentary on how well or how poorly the people interacted with the laws of Moses. Everything is just commentary on the Torah, that which Moses wrote. So I want to just jump right in to Exodus chapter 1, the problem is the Bible doesn't just start with Exodus chapter 1. The Bible starts with Genesis chapter 1. So I'm not going to go through all the creation story and the fall of man and Noah and the ark and the tower of the Babel, but I am going to pick up with the majority of what we learn about in the book of Genesis with a guy named Abraham, okay? There are three central figures in the book of Genesis Uh, And then it ends up with a guy named Joseph. You have the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God called Abraham out. He was a moon worshiper in uh, ancient Samaria near what would be modern-day Kuwait, okay? He he was a moon worshiper there, worshiped the God of the night, maybe even a devil worshiper. We're not quite sure. The people in his area were worshiping the God of the night, which had been Satan himself. God called him out of that to the promised land, and he made a promise to Abraham, then later to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, I will bless you, and you will be a great blessing to the world, and those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. And this is what he says here from this one guy, one guy's family in Genesis 22. He says to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And I, I just want to encourage you as parents, when, when you do take your kids to the beach, refer to this verse. Pick up the sand, tell them to look at all the sand that's out there, and, and remind them of the promise that God made to Abraham. Then Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac, and the blessing was given to Isaac as well, and his wife Rebekah, and it was said of her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. In other words, may, may your descendants become millions and millions because of the promise that God made to you. In Genesis 32, the promise is made to Jacob as well. This is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He says, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. 
So you have this promise over and over again to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to grow, and your family's going to become famous throughout the world. And through you and your offspring, I'm going to bless the entire world. The entire world will be blessed because of you. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, one of which, one of the youngest, or the youngest at the time, was a guy named Joseph. And when Joseph was 17 years old, his brothers were jealous because he was the smartest, brightest, and the most favorite of, of the bunch. And uh, while he was out in the fields, the brothers sold him off into slavery down to Egypt. And so this smart, bright, handsome young man goes down to Egypt as a slave. Uh, while he's working as a slave, he gets falsely accused of something and thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, God gives him the gifts of interpreting dreams. And through his dreams, word gets back to Pharaoh. He has the ability to do that. Pharaoh's having a dream that something bad's about to happen. So this young Joseph, while he's in prison, is called to come before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, the king of Egypt. And he's standing there before him. And he interprets Pharaoh's dream for him that a great famine is going to become after se- come upon the earth after seven years of plenty. And so Pharaoh believes it and he puts Joseph in charge of the entire kingdom, second only to Pharaoh himself. And Joseph saves up all uh, 20% of their grain for the next seven years so that after seven years, watch this, they would have plenty stored up to get them through the seven years of famine. So Joseph becomes the ruler of the land of Egypt other than Pharaoh, the second most powerful man in the world. Now, there's a long story. I don't have time to go through it all. But because of the famine, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery came down to Egypt looking for grain but since they hadn't seen Joseph since he was 17 years old, and here he is, a middle-aged man, when, he come, when the brothers come before him, they don't even recognize him. But eventually, he reveals himself to his brothers and says, you know what? We got plenty of food down here. I know you've got no grain up in the, in the Canaan land. Bring the whole family down here. And so they had about 70 people in the clan at that time, 70 descendants. So and, and all the children and cousins or whatever. So they all came down. And because Pharaoh loved Joseph so much, I want you to see what Pharaoh said to Joseph's family when Joseph's family arrives in Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Now, just think about that. What he's saying is this land is your land just like it is my land. It's before you. It's set before you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Now, think about that. What? I just want to put that in modern context. What if Donald Trump would say to a class of immigrants, we are going to give you 100,000 acres of the most prime, profitable land in the United States of America? What if he would say, just come on in, I'm going to give you 100,000 acres of the best land in the United States. What would be the reaction of the people who are already here, who are Americans? What would be our reaction? You guys are afraid to say, all right? What would happen? We would be angry. We would, uh, we would be fearful. Now, it's 938, just because we did a new sermon series. I don't want us to stop. 
If you're visiting here this morning at 938 because of Matthew 938, we're pr constantly praying that our church will be a church that raises up leaders who will send out leaders as workers into the field. So let's just take a time out and let's pray that right now. Lord Jesus, it's, uh, it's 938. The time we pray in the morning and the evening that you will work, send out more workers into the field. Billions of people have not heard the good news of the gospel. And the way you reach people with the gospel is you raise up leaders to go share that gospel. So now our prayer, Lord Jesus, is that you will, be, you will help us be a part of your program in raising up those leaders. Male and female, red, yellow, black, and white, Lord Jesus, may we send out workers to the field. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here he is. He gives him the best land. I'm sure the Egyptians don't like that. But here's my question to you. Why would Pharaoh do this? Why would, say, why would he say to Jacob uh, and all his family, why would he say to the, that patriarch, man, you guys can have our best? Why? Because if it weren't for Joseph, what would have happened? They all would have starved to death. If it weren't for the work of this man, and I'm sure when people came to Pharaoh complaining, like, I can't believe you just gave the best land. I'm sure Pharaoh's response was, if it weren't for what Joseph did, you and your family would be dead right now, just like mine. The entire nation of Egypt would have crumbled if it weren't for this young man named Joseph. So just shut your mouth. We, we owe them all of our land, just not a, a good portion of it. So just hush. So this was his promise. Let them settle on the land of Goshen. This was a very fertile section of land near the Nile River. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now the Pharaoh's livestock, what kind of livestock is that going to be? The best. And you're talking about some good steaks for dinner right there, right? These guys are in charge. So they get the best land. It's, it's pretty awesome, okay? And then that brings us here to Exodus. Genesis leaves off with a happy ending to the story. All the Hebrew people are down there eating the fatted calf, enjoying life the favor of the most powerful man in the world. It starts out in Exodus 1. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All were the descendants of Jacob. They were 70 persons, and jo Joseph was already in Egypt. But then Joseph died. And all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, here's what I want you to do think back to the context of the book of Genesis and the promises that God made. Why is this verse so significant right here in verse 7? 
Because what did God just promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That I would multiply your descendants as vast as the sand on the seashore. So this is what the writer of Exodus is wanting you to see over just two generations that God is keeping his promises. If they would have stayed in, in, the, in the promised land in Canaan, they would have died due to famine. But God allowed all those things to happen in Joseph's life to bring them to Egypt so that they could flourish, so that his promises could be fulfilled. So you got thousands and tens of thousands of Jews who are growing and flourishing in the best of the land in Egypt. But a generation goes by. Two generations later, watch what happens in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, look, he's like, pay attention. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. They've got a serious immigration problem. They're taking over. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, I just want you to see this. Watch what he's doing. How is he leading his people? What is his motivating factor for how they need to deal with the immigrant Jews? What is it? It's fear. Ooh, got to watch out for the boogeyman. They're going to get us. And if we don't do something right now, they're going to take over our country and we're just going to lose all control. Now listen, when you start talking and thinking that way, and you don't have a fear of God, it is scary what you can do to human beings when you don't have a respect for human life. If that's not at the heart of how you deal with human beings, whether they're from your country or from without, scary things can happen. He says, therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they, the Jews, built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the Jews were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this, this is something I just want you to see from seven verses here in Scripture. They went from enjoying the favor of the people and the Pharaoh. Watch, watch, watch. And in just two generations, everything they had was being taken away from them, except their lives. You can be a people group who enjoy the favor of the government, and within two generations, you can lose every bit of favor with that government, and that government can take everything you have from you and enslave you. 
They went from free and valued, the Jews did, to disdained and enslaved. A Jew had saved the Egyptian people just 80 years before, but they forgot him, and now they are punishing the very people that saved him. Their culture changed. And you, I just want you to see from history how this works. Same thing happened here. A lot of you recognize this. With the Jewish people in Germany, they brought tons of riches to Europe. They were at one time valued as a part of that society, but after World War I and just one generation, they began by taking away their income, by taxing them just because of their sincerely held religious beliefs. They were different. They didn't have the same ethics as the Germans. They didn't have the same lifestyle as the Germans. They didn't want their sons and daughters to intermarry with the Germans. And so a leader came in espousing fear among the people, and they started out by first just taxing them and taking their businesses away because they didn't play ball the German way, the new way. And then eventually they began to enslave them and put them in camps so that they would work for the nation of Germany, but yet they had no rights from the nation of Germany, all because of their sincerely held religious beliefs. And it all changed for them in a matter of about 15 years. All gone. It's not hard to go from freedom to slavery, but then there will be a next step after that. Because slavery, listen, slavery is never enough if the God you serve is not satisfied by slavery alone. I'm going to say that again. Slavery is never enough if the God you believe in your philosophy that drives your life, if that God doesn't believe in the value of human life, it's incredible what the government of that God can do. What I mean by that? You know, sometimes, listen listen to what I'm about to say. Sometimes people will refer back to the days of the Crusaders and some of the ills that the church committed on people uh, where a few thousand people died because of abuses within the church. And when I say a few thousand, that's all it was, was a few thousand. But listen, when the church goes out and takes away human rights, it is doing that in opposition to the value of our God, Jesus. Do y'all follow that? I want to say that again. When anyone says to be representing the church and representing Jesus... But our God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If, if Christians would go out and exact those values, it won't go very far if Jesus really is the God of those people because they are acting in opposition to their, what should be their deeply and sincere held beliefs. Do you understand that? So it won't go that far and it won't do that much. And throughout the history of the last 2,000 years, that pretty much has been true of the church. Even when it has been led by bad leaders tied to bad governments, 
you haven't had rampant genocide among them. But listen, when you have a society that believes in a dictatorial God who doesn't value life other than a certain group of people, or when you have a society who believes in the philosophical God of survival of the fittest, of evolution, it then only makes sense to snuff out the weaker ones among you if philosophically you believe that the way we got here as humans today is by snuffing out the weakest ones among us. Do do you follow what I'm saying? A godless society can do all sorts of horrible, tyrannical actions against human beings because their philosophy gives them permission to do it. And so that's what we're about to see. That's what we saw in the time of Hitler. And that's what we're going to see here during the time of the Egyptians. In the next verses, you're going to see what happens when slavery is not enough. When the God who doesn't value the Imago Dei, the image of God that is impressed on every human being, what happened in Germany, what happens in Genesis, it moves from slavery to what? Genocide. Mass murder. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these are the midwives or people who deliver babies, said to all of them, this will be over millions of people by this time, one of whom, and it picks out two in particular, named Shifra and the other Puah. It says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Kill the baby boys. Why? Because they can grow up to be warriors someday, and we need to stuff, snuff them out. What is this? As the babies are being born, break their necks. Damage the spinal cord so they die immediately. Now, friends, we have something like this that's legal in the United States today. Do you know what it's called? Partial birth abortion. And the nation that doesn't espouse the values of our God can easily allow that. Because they're the weakest among us. Who is more vulnerable than a newborn child? I don't know if you've seen these around the state. I mean, it's, if you know anyone at Lamar Advertising, I don't know why they feel like they have to put this sign up. I don't know how much money they're paying. And first of all, if abortion isn't a money-making industry, how do they afford to put up these signs? Why are they advertising like the mass business that they are? This is the one thing I caught from this sign, and they're all over the place. How many of you have seen these billboards around town, right? Like, they're very prominent. That's, that's what I wanted you to see. Have you noticed, these are the six ladies. Um, one of them doesn't look like the others. Do you know which one? It, This is specifically targeting West Virginia. Do you you see this, right? 
Only one of these ladies reflects 93% of the population of West Virginia. 93% of the population of West Virginia is white. But yet, these billboards, by and large, always, and when I say always, I have yet to see one that doesn't target the 7 to 8% of our state. This is what I wish it would say. Abortion is still legal in West Virginia. Our goal is to keep minorities in the minority because that's who they're targeting. Nationally, whites make up 72% of the population of the United States, but only 30% of abortions are committed against white children. Minorities make up, obviously, do the math, 28% of the United States population, but they make up just over 70% of the abortions in the United States. In West Virginia, the percentages are worse. In West Virginia, only 3% of our population is African American, but yet 28% of the abortions are targeted against black children. In Kentucky, 8% of the population is of African descent, but again, 28, almost a third of the abortions are committed against a vast minority of the population. And I will say again, what is abortion doing? It's keeping minorities in the minority. I'm not a minority, but I'm just telling you right now, if I were, I would be very angry at this clearly racist corporation philosophy that Planned Parenthood was founded upon how do we keep the weak in small numbers? How do we continue to oppress them? And if you don't think it's satanic, you can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1 and see that the devil is working back then the same way that he works today. Nothing's changed. It's not any different than what was happening. The Jews made up 8% of the population but yet their job was, based on fear, let's snuff them out and keep them in control. Today we live in a land where our culture has spurned godly values. In one generation, we have rejected God's views on life and human sexuality. In just one generation, in the next generation, I'm just telling you, we're starting to see it now. They will begin to persecute heavily those who hold biblical views of life and sexuality. They will begin to take your business away from you, and we've seen that they already are. They will begin to punish you for your deeply held and sincere religious beliefs because they don't line up with the philosophy of the God of this age to eventually they will force you to become a slave class, but make no mistake, it will not stop there. The devil never does. His goal is not the enslavement of God's people. His goal is what? The eradication of God's people. And it always has been, and it always will be, 
until God casts him into that lake of fire forever and ever. And because, watch this, here's one advantage that we have that the Jews didn't have. That the, both at the time of Pharaoh and at the time of Hitler, and listen, my friends, if you look throughout history, what groups of people have most mercifully, mercilessly gone after God's people? It has been those who don't believe in the God of the Bible, not the true Jesus that we read about through the Gospels. So what has happened in our nation? The advantage that we have is we don't look it's not as easy to spot those of us who believe in the God of the Bible anymore. We don't have a yellow star. We don't dress in certain clothes because we're Christians. We're a lot more incognito than the world around us. But the same thing is happening. And listen, within the church, watch this. There is a purging going on in the church today that I know God is in control, but this is what happens. More and more, we are seeing Christian leaders fall away from what God teaches about life, protecting human life from the womb to the tomb. We are seeing more and more Christian leaders come out being for the legality of abortion. We are seeing more and more Christian leaders come out being okay with redefining marriage against God's design for it the way it's been since the beginning of time. We're seeing more and more, why? Because these Christians have been raised in a culture where they just assimilated to the culture. Watch this, watch this. Mom and dads, I really need you to get this concept that I'm giving you right now. Back in the 80s and earlier in that, watch what I'm saying. You were esteemed, raised up, Praised by society if you held Christian beliefs. Even if you didn't live them out privately. If you were a teenager and you said, I believe in the Bible and I believe in these things. Adults praised you and lifted you up and talked about how you were such a great example for all the other teenagers to see. Even if you privately weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. Right? That's where all of us raised in the 80s say, yeah, that was us. All right? 70s, 60s, going on back. Okay? You were praised for following or saying that you espouse biblical values. It's not true today. If you come out and just state unequivocally, I am for marriage as God defines it, I am for life from the womb to the tomb, you will no longer be praised by all of your teachers. You will no longer be praised by your professors. And so while we have, listen, while people who are raising kids right now, while we were raised in a generation where you taught Christian values, we taught those Christian values in part, watch this, watch this, it's really important. We taught those Christian values to our kids in part so they could be accepted and valued by the leadership of our society. Because my mom, and dad, my mom and dad thought, we're going to raise our son to have these values, not just because it's biblical, because that's what makes a good kid if they believe these things about life and marriage. Do you see that? So if at your heart is, I want my kid to be success, successful, I want my kid to be accepted by society, if that is what's driving you, listen, when society's values change, 
You see that? Then as a parent, you're going to be stuck. Am I going to raise my kid according to the values of the Bible? Or do I want them to be valued by their society and accepted and successful according to the world's definitions? Do you see? Parents didn't used to have to make a choice. In, in fact, the culture helped them make that choice for them. Now the, the culture is helping you make that choice for you in that you're going to have to choose one or the other. Are you for life and for God's definition of proper sexuality? Or are you against it? Which side are you going to stand on? But listen, make no mistake. If you stand on the side of the Lord and the culture doesn't espouse those values anymore, you're going to have trouble coming your way. And I say this especially for the 20 and 30-year-olds who are about to raise children or already, you've got to start, listen, instilling courage into your kids if you're going to raise them with biblical values. Like, listen, like no generation in the history of the United States have ever had to instill those values before. Because it didn't take courage in years past to stand on what the scripture says. Now you stand on scripture says you lose your job they may even threaten to take your children away from you in the next 20 years. So if you're not instilling that in your children right now, if you're instilling them this desire to be popular and accepted, and that's what's driving them at school, I'm afraid to see how they're going to raise your grandchildren in the next generation. Because they are going to train them to raise those kids to run from biblical values so they can be accepted and popular in the world around them. Do you follow me, church? So how do we, this is what the book of Exodus is gonna teach us about. How do we raise leaders who stand in the wind of a culture that is blowing right in our face and the stream and the current is picking up more and more every day? When it attacks the very core of our beliefs, in a more severe way every day. How do we raise children who can stand with courage? We're here we're seeing in Exodus chapter one, verse 17. These midwives who were said to abort these children as they're being born, this is what it says. Here's the key. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live what is the key to raise children who what fear God that's the key you've got to fear God so the king of Egypt he finds out about it right and the, the midwife said to them he said to them what have you why have you done this and let the male children live now watch this this is what we're learning how to raise our children if they come in at this moment and say to the Pharaoh, because you're a godly, dirty, blankety, blankety, blank, what happens to those midwives at that moment that they tell the king why they did exactly what they did? Psst. That's a quick way to get yourself killed. So what do they do? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
kid was already born. I couldn't abort him as they were being born. The kid was laying there on the table. So what were the midwives doing? They knew the law. And so they would say, hey, you need to run over and tell them to hurry up and give birth to that baby. Because when I get there, the king's got to eat it. But if that baby, just letting you know, if that baby just happens to be born before I get there, it's not going to be a problem. But if I get there and that baby, so you guys come back and tell me when you really need me to get over to the house. Because she might be in labor a long time. You understand what I'm saying here? You see what's going on? This is where we have to be wise, church family. We have to be shrewd as serpents, as Jesus said. You don't just attack the culture head on. You work within the laws as they are stated, and you say what you need to say in order to do what God would have you do. He's not calling us to be martyrs just yet. But that day's going to come. Now, what's the result of this courage they had? Since so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, they're still growing. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And their families grew. This is what I want you to see from this. Honor God and he'll honor you. Honor God and he will honor you. Sometimes we have to be, as Martin Luther King Jr. demonstrated, you have to be civilly disobedient. If the law asks you to do something to go against God's law, then what must you do? You must obey God's law. You respectfully say, I can't do that. And you might go around it, you might skirt it for a while, whatever the law is, but eventually, when coming right in the face of it, you have to say, as the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, if you're going to make us choose, we must obey God rather than men. Those are the kind of children that we have to raise. If an earthly authority tells you to dishonor God, you honor God and he will honor you. This begins, watch. Woo! Everybody listen to what I'm about to say next. I got... I'm over time, but I got to get this in. Listen to what I'm about to say next. This is how, listen, listen. This is how you start teaching your kids to have courage. Hunter Bellamy, stand up. Last year, he's on leadership team. He's captain of the football team. What, what was your, uh, didn't you make All-State or something? First team All-Conference, all okay? AAA, 10-0 team. He's the heart of the defense. Wednesday night, 6 o'clock comes. Where were you? He's leaving practice to come to church. And my understanding is every once in a while he felt like, or some would say to him, maybe you won't start this week. Maybe you won't get to play. And he said, well, I'll just turn in my pads if that's what you need me to do. Guess where he was on Friday night when the defense ran out there? Standing, starting right in the middle of the linebacker. You know why? Because if you're best at what you do, I don't care how many practices you skip, you're going to play. You know why? Because every coach wants to what? Win. 
They're going to have their best kids. They will jump through hoops to get their best kids out there. They will bend laws, go around laws, school rules or whatever. They will find re- We want to win. We want our best players on the field. And so that's what Hunter did. He honored God. God honored him. Ended up first team all conference. Go ahead. You know what that shows us about Hunter there? He had courage and he had his priorities straight. And if you, listen, moms and dads, if you're not teaching your kids to keep God the first priority over all of whatever else they're involved in, when they become adults, don't be surprised when they don't raise your kids in church. Because the day is coming and it's almost here when they're going to start scheduling stuff on Sunday mornings. You're just going to have to skip church. And little by little, you're saying, well, we can have the things of the world and we can have the things of God too. And if you raise your kids that way, eventually the world's going to tell your kid, you can't have both. And you know what Jesus says? He says the same thing. You can't have both. And we have been spoiled as Americans having kids that could have both. And my friends, listen, rapidly, that nation has gone away. They knew not the God who helped plant this country. They don't remember the words of George Washington and John Adams and Patrick Henry, the founding fathers of this nation who said we are established and governed by the rules of the Bible. There will be a rising of Pharaoh in the United States who knows not Joseph. And then your kids will have to make a decision. Which God am I going to follow? And you need to make that decision today. Today. You've got to decide whether your God is big and people are small or whether people are going to be big and your God is small. Do not be mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, I just want you to understand this. If you have a fear of God, if our kids have a fear of God, It'll help them make the right choice every time. But if we don't teach them that someday they're going to be standing and they're going to be judged for how they made choices in this life, that the greatest judgment that matters is not the toys that you have in this, in this world, but in the reward you get in the next, they will succumb to the glories of Pharaoh. They will not be like the midwives. And they will not be like the man named.